and we need more people like you and and more influencers talking about you know the core network and what it means to be a bitcoiner and, and if we don't get more people on that train um it's it's not going to end well uh yeah. so people have to decide you know what what future version of bitcoin do they want i think that's the defining battle let's say of the next uh this decade uh, it's it's going to be that fight between corporate power and and individuals and and how the bitcoin network is is shaped depending mm. on that hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm gonna do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. John Stephanopoulos, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Um, took us a few tries, but we're finally yeah. getting it up and going here. Uh, just by way of quick introduction for my audience, you are the founder of Future Bit, uh, which is a a Bitcoin mining company. Uh, it's a little bit different than what you guys are doing. So maybe you could just give us a quick intro about you, how you got into Bitcoin and what is FutureBit? Yeah, sure. Um, so we got into Bitcoin um, around 2012, 13. Um, that was kind of around when uh, ASICs got introduced into into Bitcoin and was kind of becoming, mining was shifting Sports that area. Um, and at the time, I just moved to New York City at a small studio apartment. Um, so I really got into Bitcoin and being a technical guy, I was like, all right, I got to start mining. I want to see how this whole system works. Um, 
So living in a studio apartment, I got, I think it was like a S5 back then. Mm. Um, it was a small, um, small in today's standards for Bitmain monitors. Um, and you could still run it on 120 volts, uh, but it was still very loud. Um, so I quickly realized, you know, that's not gonna, not a long-term mining solution for a studio apartment in New York City. And that was kind of the genesis for future bit. Um, I saw this shift going up mining was starting to centralize a lot in these big server type farms, um, where, you know, economy of scales were there for people to run them. And then the equipment started to get less and less, um, designed for, for individuals in the own market. Um, so that kind of, you know, went against the ethos of Bitcoin. Um, and I was like, I gotta see if I can build stuff. Um, that scared for the whole miners and that was kind of how future bit started um we started with uh small usb miners uh back in 2015 um and that kind of it's an interesting story of how we started because uh, we had purchased um there was a, a mining company that had gone bankrupt so we took all of their assets mm-hmm. and they had it you know couple thousand uh asics left over and i was like all right let me tinker around and try to build uh a usb minor with these um so that's kind of how we started um started from you know a failed basic company um and then we introduced our uh, apollo platform in 2018 and that's kind of the the direction of that was the, the main mainstream product of futurebit um so the, the apollo platform not only a Bitcoin miner, but we're trying to combine the whole aspect of the Bitcoin ecosystem in a single, easy to use device. Um, so it includes a full node, um, it's essentially small Linux computer, and then it has a small um, Bitcoin miner attached to it. Um, and again, the whole, the whole point of it is, you know, we, we built the miner where it was uh, quiet and low power enough where most people would be able to run it in an apartment setting. And most importantly, not shut it off. Um, so our whole economics and how we designed the system was, let's make it low power enough in the 100 to 200 watt range where the power bill wouldn't be, people wouldn't see a huge impact on their power bill. Um, and they would be incentivized to pretty much run the node, which was our, which is my main mission is to get more nodes out there. Um, and the mining aspect is a cool way to incentivize that. Um, yeah, and you know, that's how it was in the beginning when Bitcoin started. All right. So the original Satoshi Bitcoin core, it was a single piece of software that included the wallet, the full node software plus mining. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how he envisioned the system to to build out would be, you know he I don't think Satoshi ever envisioned that mining and full nodes would be separated from wallets. Mm-hmm. And that there would be three separate systems, which is what they are today. So, and that's kind of created these market dynamics where it's creating more centralization on I mean, each aspect. Um, and that's kind of what we're trying to fight. We're trying to get back to that original vision of, um, you know, there's one person behind a full node and a miner that secures a network. Mm-hmm. And that's how the network should be secured. And that's how we maintain censorship resistance. Um, and that's pretty much what we're we're trying to do at Future Nice. So, 
a lot of technical terms thrown in there for audience mm-hmm. that may or may not be deeply familiar with uh, the ins and outs of Bitcoin mining. So maybe we could talk a little, start to kind of just define some of these terms, and then maybe we can start to unpack the technical side of Bitcoin mining a little bit, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. So you threw out some terms like ASICs. Uh, I think you said USB miner, um, full node. Can we talk about just decomposing a few of these terms, what they are, what the, just tr- explaining the technical side of Bitcoin mining to someone who may not be familiar with it. They kind of know what Bitcoin is, but they don't know so much about technical aspects of Bitcoin mining. And then you also said the mission of yourself or the company is basically to incentivize more people to run full nodes. So can we talk about why that's important? Uh, Again, defining what a full node is and then why that's important for uh, the anti-fragility of the network, let's say. Yeah, sure. Um, So let's start off with, you know, what mining is at the basic level. Um, At the end of the day, it's you're you're hashing um, a block of transactions that are bundled together. You're taking the hash of that and the, the system is trying to solve that whole block by by doing these cryptographic hashes. Um, so when you say ASIC or or CPU mining, it's all the same thing at the end of the day. They're all computer devices that are doing these cryptographic hashes. Um, so when you know Bitcoin first was released, it was all done on CPU. Yeah. Um, that sorry, is the algorithm. Sorry, when you say hash, could you just define that as well, please? Just like what what's actually happening for people that may not know that term. Yeah, sure. So when a, a block is created, um, what the software does is it essentially bundles all of the uh, transactions that are coming in um, into a single block, and then the header of that block is hashed. Um, so what what that hashing algorithm does is it tries to, based on what the difficulty level is on, on the Bitcoin network, tr- it tries to solve for that difficulty level. So it just keeps going and looping over that same header mm. until it finds um, an actual solution to that difficulty. So that's how the whole proof of work mechanism works. Um, it's trying to continually find, um, and it's become super hard to do because of ASICs right now, um, just to find that block header that, that solves that block. Um, and that proof of work is what secures the whole network. Um, Right, so the so, more the more people competing to solve it, the more difficult it becomes, which is kind of part of the magic sauce of Bitcoin, right? That it's constantly right. adapting to how hard, how much energy, capital expenditure, operational expenditure we're putting into trying to solve each block. Right. So the whole mechanism of Bitcoin is is trying to maintain that ten minute block time. Um, yeah. So whenever whenever the the software sees that more blocks are being created within that 10 minutes, um, it adjusts that difficulty. So it's more harder to to solve that block and then it brings the block time back down to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's how we maintain that 10 minute block time. And vice versa. Um, right. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to yeah, cut I, you off, but I just I want to, these terms that we throw around in Bitcoin, <laughs> a lot of people that are new to Bitcoin, don't know what they are. So I feel like we have to really kind of double click on them and expand. Um, yeah, I get it. And that, that's kind of, um, you know, what we're trying to see, especially on the educational front of, of what we're trying to change in, in the mentality of Bitcoin. So a, a lot of people 
discovered Bitcoin through buying it on an exchange, let's say. Um, and that's cool. Um, but I, I think a lot of, you know, the hundreds of millions of people have discovered Bitcoin that way. They see Bitcoin as just a stock, essentially. Right. They don't understand the fundamentals behind what the system is. And that's and that's the cool thing with like all the people we've onboarded through FutureBit. They get to understand the fundamental of what it means to own Bitcoin and be participating in the base network itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people that understand that level um, really get Bitcoin and really understand, okay, here, here's a system that I myself have influence over and I'm controlling and I'm controlling my own transactions. I can broadcast my own transactions through a full node and they get to the core of what it means to to have a censorship resistant decentralized network right um that people discovering bitcoin um you know through just word of mouth or exchanges or just holding it don't um and that's the barrier that we're trying to break and it's a hard one um obviously but it's cool when even if you're not a technical person you have this little device on your desk where you see it running and just that you know knowing that bitcoin is coming in because you're computing you know trillions of these transactions that is contributing to the network security and you're getting a little bit of bitcoin as a reward for that that's where the sparks start flying and they get it even if even if you don't get the fundamental you know what a hash is what an asic is you still understand that you yourself are one person contributing to the totality of what the bitcoin network is yeah Um, and that's that's a powerful thing that a lot more people need to understand yeah, that is super cool. I would, I would say too, putting that on par with like the first time you send a Bitcoin transaction and you see real money settle with no one between you and the other counterparty. Like that's, that's one level of participation. And you're talking about like kind of the next level participation where you're actually a network participant, right? You're contributing to the right. security of the network, et cetera. So, uh, you mentioned the term ASICs. Can we define that one as well? And also when they came, because as you said. There was a time where Bitcoin mining didn't have ASICs, but it, the Bitcoin mining transitioned to ASICs. So what are they? And could you right. just describe that transition a little bit? Yeah. So how I mentioned in the beginning, the, the initial uh, uh, Bitcoin release was just a single piece of software anybody could run on any computer. So you know the, the actual hashing algorithm that secured the network ran on thousands of these early computers that you know people were just running on laptops or CPU towers that were just running 24-7. Um, and a couple of years later, people realized the, the, the base algorithm, even though it's a very powerful cryptographic algorithm, that's, you know, impossible to break. It's an actual, very, very simple mathematical, um, algorithm to run on a computer. Um, so you can actually take this very simple algorithm, reduce it to its basic functions, and then put it into a specialized chip where it only runs that algorithm on that silicon mm-hmm. um so obviously a cpu is a general purpose computer that runs you know any type of calculation you throw at it so it's great for general person general purpose computing but it's not good at specific tasks mm-hmm. um so what asics are it's an application specific um uh integrated processor circuit. integrated circuit yeah. that takes a um algorithm that you develop um it etches that algorithm onto the silicon itself. So the silicon itself are, are actual SHA-256 hash engines. Um, 
So this speeds up the process by, you know, orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, the early CPUs used to, you know, operate in the low giga hash and now uh, a single ASIC can operate in hundreds of giga hashes. Wow. Um, um, 98 giga hash was like mega hash uh, for actual CPUs back then. Um, So it's like a thousand times faster. So obviously with the economics of Bitcoin and, and how the network is secured, people got inventive and were like, okay, we can, uh, there's ways to speed this up and take uh, more hash power and produce more Bitcoin. Um, so obviously all the early people that were involved um, got into uh, building these days, like Bitmain was one of the first ones. Um, and obviously they're one of the main players now and one of the only, only almost major players still producing um, ASICs. And that's kind of the issue with the whole uh, ASIC system and kind of the what what people don't like about ASICs is the fact that it's it's hardware that takes hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. Um, therefore, um, people that control it, it's very centralized and it's very hard um, to to open the system up because there's so much money involved in developing them. Mm. Um, so that you know concentrates a lot of the manufacturing for Bitcoin ASICs to just a, a couple uh, players. Um, and, you know, that also creates the problem of having very little hardware um, developed that's specific to different areas and different mm-hmm. use cases. And that's kind of also what we're, we're trying to fight. We're, we're working and developing our own ASICs that will be able to open up the system and have a lot more participants uh, being able to um, develop different type of hardware. Um, mm. So there's different use cases um, beyond just, you know, let's say the desktop finder that we built, um, you know, there's a whole plethora of different uh, places where you can run ASICs in the home setting. Right. Um, and that's kind of the challenge going forward of, of how do we create um, more accessible hardware so more people can, can get into the home mining train. Right, right, right. Okay, and so you you threw out some terms there, switching from GPUs to ASICs in the mining network. We the hash rate, which is kind of the measurement of the total energy that's pouring into the Bitcoin security budget, I guess you would say, um, right, is measured in those hashes. So you're going like, right. you know, mega, giga. I think we're at exa hashes today. Or, Right, still at exahashes. Yeah, we're and peta would be next. Is that right? I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's four hundred, about four hundred exahashes. Right, right, and it's yeah. that. So in layman's terms, those would be measuring the numbers of guesses or lottery tickets that are being cast in this ten minute lottery. Right, right? people are trying to right. solve this thing to win the Bitcoin, basically. Yep, that's closing on an average of every ten minutes, as you said. The algorithms retargeting the the difficulty to to try to hit a ten minute block time, whether so right. people are and mining harder than the difficulty increases. If mining exactly. power comes offline, then it difficulty decreases such that it optimizes for ten minute block times. What does that does that sound about right to you? I don't know, is there anything you wanted to add there on the hash? No, yeah, and 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 that's a cool way to to put it too is. And that's what a lot of people don't understand, um, especially on the lower end of, of devices. Um, so there's a lot of, um, af- after 
uh, future gets started, there, there's been a lot of new grassroots type of hardware makers coming out in the market, which is really cool to see. Um, and there, and there's a lot of um, uh, people don't understand that you know they see small miners and alcohol. That's that's doesn't make any sense here. You're never going to make any Bitcoin out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really true because you can mine, you can technically mine a Bitcoin block off your CPU right now. Mm-hmm. Like you put it, each hash is essentially one lottery ticket to find a Bitcoin block. So it doesn't matter whether you're computing a hash on your um, the cell phone, your computer, or a powerful 200 terahash bitmain ASIC. Everybody's computing the same hashes. Um, it's just a matter of how many hashes you're putting out there mm-hmm. to increase your chances of finding that block. Um, so it doesn't matter what device you have. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like what the whole grassroots movement started with Futurebit. A lot of that is not just um, mining to pools, but it's solo mining. So mm-hmm. what a lot of our users do is they just go straight to a solo mine and they're trying to find that single Bitcoin block themselves. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being pooled to a pool and then the, dis- the rewards being distributed based on your hash rate. Um, and, and a lot of our users have actually found blocks, which is really cool to see. Wow. So, you know, yeah, they, a, a little $500 device has found, you know, a six Bitcoin block and um, it's, it's exciting and they keep the whole when, thing when you see it. Because they're not yeah, pulled. all six Bitcoin, right. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the other aspect of how we can continue to to incentivize people um it's not just pure economics and what's you know how much bitcoin and fiat terms are you making back mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense in the beginning anyway if you're a bitcoiner and and you're mining bitcoin you should only care the, the satoshis that you're you're collecting at the end of the day sure um and that, that's my other gripe i have with the whole industry and you can get into that later but um you know a lot of people that are involved in our customer base, they just love, love running these machines and securing the network, and that's what they care about. And you know, running uh, our machine as a solo miner is a cool way to do it. Right. Um, because okay, you know, yes, you could make a little bit of Bitcoin uh, connected to a pool, but there's this aspect of okay, I can run the device as a solo, it's cheap enough, and the power is low cost enough where I can run it as a solo miner continually run it and not care about my power bill um and i have a chance that's way better than the lottery to actually get a bitcoin block right um and that's kind of you know how i see the bitcoin network evolving in the future when more people get involved if you are a business owner or manager you should know these three numbers 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to netsuite by oracle NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney.
Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. That's um, interesting. So, <clears throat> okay, let's let's talk about full nodes. I think we have to talk about that. Obviously, that's core to the mission of yourself and the business here. Uh, and I think you mentioned, too, that there was a separation that occurred at some point where initially Satoshi had envisioned that, that mining full nodes and wallets were kind of one thing but throughout bitcoin's history they've become separated so what is and and this is i think probably the bitcoins is i've described it as like this vortex of positive incentives like it's incentivizing everyone to operate in its favor and help the network proliferate but this is kind of the one weak spot right there's not really strong incentives to run full nodes so what is a full node and what is the importance of running a full node and why are the incentives lacking? Right. So uh, how I kind of explain this is, is the Bitcoin mining is um, the transaction processing and, and the, the security of the network. And the node, how I think of it is as the, the consensus slash protocol layer of Bitcoin. So it's mm. the rules that define Bitcoin is essentially mm what how i see the value in a bitcoin node mm -hmm. yes there's a lot more to it but at the end of the day the value of a bitcoin node is that you're essentially voting on what the rules of the bitcoin network are mm -hmm. um so it, and and to expand on that obviously the a bitcoin full node uh what that does is it holds all the transaction history of bitcoin mm -hmm. um so when you're let's say you want to send a, a transaction out usually what happens is you send it um through a service or a third party that's running their own bitcoin full node on the back end and you're trusting that third party um not only are you trusting them you're also sending the transaction to them so you know that's another or they can surveil you and uh, you know log mm -hmm. your IP address with that transaction just sent to them, and a lot of other type of mm -hmm. privacy issues associated with that. Um, so when you run the full node yourself, what you can do is you can con connect the wallet to that full node, send the transaction out through your own private node where no one knows anything about uh, you know where the transaction came from uh, or who owns that node. Um, and that's a what uh, that's a big importance of running a full node. Uh, apart from the whole, you know, we need as many people as possible showing the whole network that we're we're on a unified front on what the rules of Bitcoin are. Um, so 
right now, last time I checked it, I think the number of full nodes was around, um, let's see here. It's like 40,000. 40, um, so sounds like a lot. Um, but if you think of how many Bitcoiners are out there, you know, last estimates are, you know, in the hundreds, millions have, have at least touched Bitcoin. It's a, a tiny fraction. Yeah. Um, and most of those Bitcoin full nodes are, are run by miners, exchanges, um, and centralized services. Mm. Um, so what happens, let's say in the future where there's a contentious, uh, update or, or software coming out. If we don't have enough people, um, like back when the, the whole block size war happens, um, going against all these centralized nodes and, and acting in the interests of the people instead of the interests of corporations and centralized exchanges, et cetera, um, you know, the, the whole block size war could earned a lot different. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened was there was enough people, um, everyday people, you know, saying, no, we want small blocks. We want to make sure Bitcoin full nodes are being able to be run by anybody using any type of hardware. There wasn't enough of those nodes running and signaling that this is what we want. It could have been a completely different Bitcoin history. Mm -hmm. um, and we would have had a, uh, you know, BSV type uh, mm -hmm. Bitcoin instead of a, a, a small block uh, Bitcoin that we have today. Um, so that's that's the main importance of why people should be running full nodes apart from the self uh, right. transaction benefits and, and everything else that comes with it. Yeah. So there's this, I guess just to recap real quick, some of these terms we defined, you've got the ASIC, which is the application sp specific integrated circuit, which basically almost all of Bitcoin mining is done with today. Um, kind of a one trick pony um, circuit, right? It does one thing really, really, really well. It's not general like a GPU. So it's like a super specific form of capital. The, yeah, you can't do any other type of transaction or uh, uh, processing other than Bitcoin album. Exactly. And then the hashes are sort of like lottery tickets in this Bitcoin mining lottery that's closing every 10 minutes. Like you're just buying lottery tickets basically with electricity and hardware. Um, and then we're saying now that the nodes, the full node, is how users are choosing which rules they will abide by, right? Which consensus parameters and the 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 consensus of that selection is Bitcoin, right? It's like, you know, 21 million certain block size, right. minute blocks, whatever the, the things are. And then miners, the actual mining is... I always think about that, like the node is like the social layer. People are actually kind of choosing which rules they want to abide right. by. And then miners are the enforcement layer. They're enforcing the rules. And so by way of analogy, you might think of nodes as like like uh, choosing the language they want to speak, almost like maybe like a culturally emergent language. But then we also have inside of countries, there are official languages, right? You know, like in Canada, they'll say French and English are the official languages. So that's kind of like um, the the I don't know, it's not the enforcement of language necessarily, but there's kind of an officially recognized uh, language. So there's a sort of a bottom up thing occurring where the nodes are determining what Bitcoin is, and miners really just kind of do the bidding of nodes, right? If if nodes are sufficiently 
decentralized as you're describing and not run by just these centralized services. Yeah. And, and, and I want to clarify, you know, what you said, miners themselves are technically not enforcing node rules. At least that's not how the Bitcoin network should operate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I'll get, I'll elaborate that on that a little bit. Um, the, the miners themselves are simply, um, taking the network and, and, uh, through proof of work and, and producing these blocks and through the, you know, gigawatts of power behind it are protecting, um, attack vectors through mining. Mm -hmm. Um, and as long as, as long as all the miners are, are incentivized to, to operate, uh, on what their best interest is. And that's what's happened in the whole entirety of Bitcoin's history. And hopefully that will continue to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, they'll continue to produce blocks that abide by the consensus rules of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Now that gets iffy because what's happened in the Bitcoin network is, and, and this, and this is an important thing that a lot of people don't talk about. It's not made really public is at the end of the day, yes, nodes uh, and everybody running a node, um, agrees on, on these rules, but the people that produce the actual blocks are the ones that are enforcing the, those rules. Mm. So if, if all these nodes, these 40,000 nodes are not also mining, they're technically, unless there's like a, a huge consensus, like it was with, with, uh, um, the block size war, um, the, they're not they're not there to, to enforce the rules. They're, they're there as a pressure force the miners to do the right thing mm. kind of thing. And, and that's mm. how the block size war works. But at the end of the day, the people that produce the blocks are the ones that are enforcing the rules. So the issue with um, centralized mining, and especially not only just on, on the mega farm, the centralization of mining power, but the centralization of pools is that there's only, you know, half a dozen pools that produce the majority of Bitcoin blocks. Mm -hmm. But these half a dozen pools are the ones that are enforcing the rules. Mm -hmm. And that that is where the decentralization issue of Bitcoin uh, comes into play. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the, the, the important part. So if there's not enough people producing free, what I call free blocks, solo blocks, or mm -hmm. people just running Bitcoin core on their own, um, then we get into the issue where, you know, if there's only five major pools, we can all get together and say, well, this is what we're doing now. And this, these are the transactions that we're going to accept into the mempool and reduce mm. the blocks out. Um, and if there's not enough, um, let's say, you know, a good percentage of hash rate, that's, that's just the transactions as the network and, and the, the node rules uh, accept. Then you know your transaction might be blocked because there's some weird history to it that's filtered through these major corporations that they don't want added into their blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, but as long as there's an, enough free hashing, um, which should technically be over fifty percent, um, then you're you're almost guaranteed that your transaction you know will eventually get onto the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And and that's my main concern over where the, the trend has been going uh, with Bitcoin mining and, and how do we make sure that that never happens. Um, regardless of who's involved in Bitcoin, who's mining it, 
um, what the future adoption looks like, uh, we have to make sure there's always free blocks being produced. And, and that can only happen by having us power uh, being produced by, by everyday people. Gotcha. I uh, threw out another term there, mempool. Uh, these are, this is the queuing of the transactions that are bidding for block space to get right. processed or cleared. Yes. And and that's kind of, we can go into segue a little bit here with, um, I'm not sure if you heard the news with Marathon in the past few weeks where they essentially produce an invalid block. Um, so what did you hear about that? Mm-mm. Yeah. So Marathon was, uh, Mines and invalid block that was rejected by the Bitcoin network. Um, and that's great. That's what should happen. So they mined a block that had a bug in it. Um, and the Bitcoin nodes saw this. And they're like, oh, this is not this is not running with the consensus rules and rejecting this block. And that's how the, the network should operate. And it was great. But what this kind of shows behind the scenes and what a lot of people don't understand um, how the mempool works and, and what's important about that is a lot of these centralized uh, pools and, and miners don't even run a Bitcoin core. And a lot of people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're creating, and that kind of goes back to your original question of how, how the separation of, of um, the node and, and the mining aspect played out and why it's important. Um, you know, when you're running Bitcoin core, you're, you're, you're running the exact same program in the MIP pool, which collects the, all the transactions before these transactions are included in the block. Um, so like right now the member pool is full because, you know, it, there's always more transactions coming in that are able to be mined. So only, the only transactions that get included in the next block are usually those transactions that have the highest fees. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how, um, the mempool gets cleared. It's based on, you know, whoever has the highest fees, obviously the miners are incentivized Who's to take the that transaction first. No. Right. Um, so. As long as everybody's technically running Bitcoin Core, they're all running and collecting these transactions at the at the. They should technically all have about the same looking block for each block. Um, but what these centralized miners are doing is they're they have their own set of software. They have their own set of mining software that collects the transactions from the mempool, and they create these block headers based on whatever they technically want. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a distinction that a lot of people don't understand in Bitcoin. Is before a block is included in the blockchain, the mempool is kind of like the wild west. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no real rules on on what transaction you need to pick and include in in, in the block. Um, so you can technically say, um, I'm going to be altruistic and I'm just going to take all the low fee blocks, and that's the only thing I'm going to mine because mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure all the people that you know, can't afford it a $10 block are, are being included. Mm-hmm. Or you could take this to, to the next level where, um, you know, you have a bunch of centralized miners all being backed and owned by these big corporations. And they're like, wait, we can't have um, rushing transactions and in blocks anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to take your software, you're going to put a little flag for all the IP addresses in, in Russia and exclude them. And there's nothing in Bitcoin or, or rules or, or, or how the blocks are even the blockchain that prevents that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like where people don't, you know, when people talk about censorship resistance in Bitcoin, 
yes, the the core linear and the core how uh, Bitcoin is designed is centrist and resistance, but the actual mechanism of including blocks into the next block is not. The transactions right. in the next block is not. Um, and the only way censorship resistant remains on the mempool level is there's enough nodes running collecting um, transactions in, in a censorship resistant way and then including it in the next block. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of what happened with Marathon. They're running their own custom um, software where whatever they did, they screwed up. Um, they were you know running Bitcoin Core and that block was rejected. Um, but that kind of exposes a, you know, and a lot of people woke up to the fact that, you know, I, I'm not, you know, dissing on, on, on and saying, yeah, any of these big mining companies are, are not running in the best interests of Bitcoin. But, you know, when you have that much money involved and you have that much corporate pressure and state pressure um, mm-hmm. involved in running these mining operations, you have to question yourself and say, you know, will these companies remain, um, dedicated to the mission of what Bitcoin is and and at the core of it it is censorship resistance. So right. Um, but that's so there, there's a dependency on the self-interestedness of miners. So you're almost assuming they're gonna operate in their own they're gonna operate in a way that is profit maximizing, but that's not necessarily true at the corporate level where they might face other pressures, right? State yeah so censorship like, or you whatever know, else. When, Right. And that's the problem with big mines is when you have a, you know, a five gigawatt mine in Texas, it's an easy target for, for mm-hmm. the state to say, okay, I know where your mine is, obviously. Right. I'll shut down power to it tomorrow if you don't act in the way right. I want you to act. Right, right, right. So that's the, that's the problem with the huge concentration of Bitcoin um, hash rate in, in these centralized right, places. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so then back to the mission of like getting it more distributed, right? By getting more people running full nodes and then more people mining uh, in home and, and, right, and, and right. smaller, smaller out- and, outfits. And then, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. They're like, okay, you, you look at a, an Apollo miner, that's a, um, a three tier hash miner. Like, well, what's that going to do for the network? Yeah. The individual unit won't do anything for the network, but people don't understand the power of numbers. Um, mm-hmm. So let's say there's a hundred million semi-active Bitcoin users. It would only take 10% of them, you know, let's say, you know, five to 10 million people mining at, uh, let's say 10 terahash hash to, to equal half the current Bitcoin hash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would only take a small subset of people that really believe in Bitcoin to get to the point where the censorship resistance of Bitcoin will always remain intact because there will always be these miners producing blocks that will always be free and it will always take transactions in the mempool as yeah. Bitcoin Core, um, you know, is designed. Gotcha. Um, so that's that's the mission of, of what we're doing. Um, you know, we're we're already just the future bit itself already has five percent of the nodes on a network. Um, so it's, it's a it's a pretty big percentage already um so and and that's with us just getting started so it, it doesn't take much um yeah. to get the main thing is to get the word out there and for people that hold bitcoin themselves you know they they have to understand it's not you know great you're buying bitcoin 
and you're, you're holding it and um, it's increasing price because, you know, you're, you're holding Bitcoin. That's one way to help the network. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about the price. Everybody talks about the price and where it's going. And and we need more people like you and, and more influencers talking about, you know, the core network and what it means to be a Bitcoiner. And, and if we don't get more people on that train, um, it's it's not going to end well uh, for yeah. Bitcoin. So people have to decide, you know, what. What future version of Bitcoin do they want? You know, do, do they want the corporate-owned uh, uh, version where, okay, there's billions of dollars being poured into the network, but at the end of the day, how different is it than the current banking system? Or do you want the version where, you know, there's a big group of tens of millions of Bitcoiners mining and, and making sure that the network has remained uh, decentralized and social persistent. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, the, I think that's the defining battle, let's say of the next, uh, this decade. Mm. Um, it's, it's going to be that fight between corporate power and, and individuals and, and how the Bitcoin network is, is shaped depending mm. on that. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health. Crowd health is a Bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a coin join. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, okay, one other term that came up there I think we should define you mentioned mining pools so these are where miners are pooling together to sort of share how much hash rate they're contributing to the network and then sharing the the block rewards that they uh the i guess i should say the coinbase rewards and transaction fees that they earn they split it pro rata based on their their um, contribution and you mentioned there's kind of a danger of mining pool centralization if you get too much. Uh, I think you said there's a over a little bit over a dozen major mining pools, and that could be a risk. I've heard the counterpoint though because 
that because mining pools are so easy to enter and exit that centralization is less of a risk related to mining pools. So uh, could you just give us uh, your explanation of what mining pools are and what the centralization risk actually are related to mining pools? Yeah, sure. So mining pools kind of developed um, pretty early on in Bitcoin because it makes sense, especially when a lot more people got involved in the network. Um, in the beginning, you know, when in the, let's say the first couple hundred people or a thousand people were running the original version of Bitcoin Core and they were on mining their computer, almost everybody would find a block because there were just some few people. So mm-hmm. people didn't care about, you know, their mining power relative to everybody else mm-hmm. um, because everybody was, um, you know, equally. There were essentially one pool back then where everybody was getting uh, Bitcoin blocks. Mm-hmm. Everybody was happy. Mm-hmm. So what happened when Bitcoin took off is, you know, okay, now we have millions of people involved. It's one in a million that you're going to find a Bitcoin block um, if you all have equal hash rate. Um, so people were like, all right, I'm not going to wait let's say six months or a year to find a Bitcoin block by chance, I'm going to, I'm going to band together with a bunch of people and be like, all right, let's aggregate all our hash power together. That increases our chance of finding a block based on that hash power that's pooled together. And once a block is found, um, what the pool software essentially does is it says, okay, we found, we collectively found a block. Here's the percentage of hash power you contributed, here's a portion of that Bitcoin for that percentage that you contributed to this pool. And that's how Bitcoin pools work. So you get steady payouts um, based on your contribution of hash mm-hmm. power. And so instead of being paid out, you know, pools, most pools find, you know, even small pools might find a couple dozen blocks a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're waiting and, you know, even if you had a lot of hash power in today's standards, you could be waiting, um, you know, months or, or years before you actually find the block. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people just choose to jump on pools and, and get that steady payout um, mm-hmm. for the contribution of hash power. Um, and that's kind of how pools emerge and how it's the major um, way to mine Bitcoin. Um, what you've kind of seen with a lot of these bigger um, mining companies is some of them are mining their own blocks, but you know they have so much hash power that they can find blocks fast enough where it makes sense for them to to just individually mine. Um, and in terms of, like you mentioned, in terms of uh, decentralization, yes, you're right. Um, let's say there's an actor, um, there's a pool actor that's saying you know it's not abiding by some consensus rules or they're doing something weird. Uh, in terms of transaction processing, what transactions they're included and they're including in their blocks, you can be like, all right, I'm not mining with you anymore. I'm going to switch my hash power to some other pool. And that's great. Um, but for that to be a reality, there should be hundreds of pools. Um, mm. If you look at you look at the current distribution of Ashwolk right now, um, let's see. You know, Foundry is the biggest pool, has 30%. Um, and Pool, Bitmain's pool, has 24%. Um, so that's over 50% just between these two pools. And then the next one, two, three, four pools have the, the, the next 80%. Mm. Um, so we're talking about, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six pools control over 80% Bitcoin hash rate. Mm. Um, so what happens if these six guys decide to, 
to collectively say, this is what we're mining. This is, these are the rules that these are the block headers and, and blocks that we're contributing to, then you don't have anywhere else to go. Right. Um, so, so, so there's definitely some political risk related to the concentration, but I guess the important distinction is it's not so much these six pools don't represent six mining farms, which is a common misconception. People are like, oh, if it's right. only six pools, then the government can no, just target no. these yeah, six so, pools. Uh, yeah. Right. A, lo- a lot of these pools are, are actually individual miners just mining right. on them and, and slowly cl- collecting Bitcoin. And, and that's what keeps these pools honest mostly because they know if they don't act honestly, the hash rate will, will leave. Um, but you know, in in a perfect world, there there shouldn't be more than six in these pools. Sure. Um, you know, and and going a step beyond that, there should be a, a big percentage of hash rate that is not associated with any pool. So there, right. there should be a lot more right. solo right. actors. Um, so do you? And, and that, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, then do you? Are you seeing a future then where? Every device that can generate hashes would be generating some hashes to just almost like passively monetize by contributing to the Bitcoin network. Are you seeing every residential, everyone, every home in the world mining Bitcoin one day? Like, how do you see the the evolution of Bitcoin mining network going forward? Yeah, that's that's kind of. The long-term vision that I have is, is how does the net, you know a, a lot of people um, you know especially now they're they're um, you know they're they're attached to, to the big uh, mining farms and how they're stabilizing the grids and, and you know all these great aspects of having you know centralized miners next to power plants which is great um, but I think um, if enough people understand what we've talked about here in the past hour or so, they'll understand how important it is to get involved uh, no matter what level of Bitcoin you're at. Um, so I do see, you know, any source of heat, anything that generates electricity and heat, um, if Bitcoin goes into mass adoption, I think that any source of heat will be converted into Bitcoin mining. I do see that as a future. Um, mm-hmm. So any device, let, let's say that, is in your house that generates heat, you know, how many devices are those space heaters, um, water heaters, pool heaters, um, you know, HVAC systems, uh, commercial systems producing heat, hmm. you know, what have you, there's, there's dozens and dozens of different applications. Um, Isn't that every electric like appliance, what? like every TV, every refrigerator, every, every, all that stuff produces heat, right? It, it, yeah. I mean, the, the important aspect is, 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 um, I shouldn't say waste heat, but yeah. you know heat that uses something that's heated by electricity. Um, yeah. You know to produce hot water or or what have you. Um, yeah. You know even stovetops mm-hmm. you, you could extend into that, um, which is a, a kind of little side story. Um, so some of the ASICs that we've developed, um, you can actually heat past a hundred degrees, um, so you can actually boil water. So you can dip these boards in actual water and boil them um, mm. and produce steam, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Um, so, you know, innovations like that where, where the ASICs are actually hot enough to produce useful um, uh, heat energy, um, mm. you know, that will expand the market on these devices uh, tenfold. Mm. Um, 
And that's kind of like our long-term version of uh, vision and what we're working on is it's, okay, yeah, we, we built this great whole miner, but we want to build a system where we can open up this, uh, the hardware that we've developed that's taking, you know, tens of millions of dollars to develop um, and open it up to other people and be like, okay, you have a use case for, for all this waste seat, take our system that we've already built, create a, a water heater out of it and plug it into your house. Um, and, and create a product around that. Um, and I think that's kind of like the trend. Um, a lot of different companies have popped up are doing these things. And, um, you know, we want to help as many companies as possible sprout up in this industry and, and be able to um, open up the, the market in, in all this waste heat and, and heating um, things with, you know, the waste uh, heat coming from Bitcoin miners. Um, and I do see that as, as in the future, you know what, once you separate mining from this kind of, um, fiat incentive structure that the big miners have promoted. And, and to be honest, most of these miners are, are not doing it because, you know, they're not telling you, oh, you can't mine Bitcoin because it's unprofitable. They're saying it to keep people from mining Bitcoin because obviously mm-hmm. the less people mm-hmm. that mine Bitcoin, <laughs> the more profits they have. Sure. Um, but at the at the end of the day, most of these Bitcoin miners, where are they? They're, they're Nasdaq listed corporations that care about the dollar. That's the bottom line, right? right. They don't care. Right. They don't care about you know how much Bitcoin they mine. You, you see, they sell Bitcoin all the time to mm-hmm. to, to finance the, the future. Um, so when we get to to a point where um, a lot of millions of people that are into Bitcoin because of why they're into Bitcoin that matters. The fact that, you know, the dollar is being devalued and they want a different system. They want a, to opt out of the fiat system. All those people will get it. They'll they'll run Bitcoin and not care about what it costs mm-hmm. them to run those miners, especially when it's coupled with these devices where they can heat their house up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a sense, it costs them zero to mine Bitcoin because that would have been wasted uh, electricity for a power bill anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So when we get to that kind of mindset, uh, I think that's when this will really take off. And, and, and it's already started and I'm already seeing it. Um, there's a lot of companies sparring up and there's a lot of products coming up that, you know, that are going in that direction. It's real cool to see. Yeah, I had some uh, Bitcoin mining produced beef jerky which was pretty cool they use the heat off the miners to make beef jerky i guess um right right i've That's heard cool. i've heard i don't know if these exist or this was just a theory or what but talking about like bitcoin mining hot tubs like actually just heat a hot tub yeah. with bitcoin mining right yeah um interesting, yeah, interesting greenhouses there's like yeah heating up greenhouses and bitcoin miners there's so many applications that people don't realize you know it, it, even if a small fraction of this whole waste heat industry is adopted to Bitcoin mining, that would that would blow out the hash rate of every centralized miner, um, right? Probably tenfold. Wow. Um, so it's it's a huge industry that people don't understand, and I really think that's going to be a direction. Um, I, I think how I kind of explain it to people, I think is like we're at the IBM mainframe era of Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before before the Apple came out and Macintosh, you know, all the all all the Made early compute power was centralized yeah. into these mainframes. Mm-hmm. And back then all those mainframe providers were like, people will never do this in their house. Mm-hmm. You know, people will never right. have computers in their house doing this. Mm-hmm. 
until a company came up and was like, here you go. You can mm-hmm. do this in your house. Um, and that's kind of like where we are, I think, in Bitcoin history. And we're, we're kind of like in that 1984 moment of, mm-hmm. you know, where we're going to open up Bitcoin mining to everybody. Um, and that's going to be really cool to see and to see it play out. Um, and I personally hope that is the future we see these. And then we'll know we won. Um, yeah. Then we'll know there's no way Bitcoin can be co-opted by corporations again. Um, so, right. you know. That's a great, great and, way to look at it. The mainframe moment, you know, switching to the PC. Kind of eerie that it's 1984. That's the year that we're... Right, <laughs> is right. It, is, it, is it the PC moment or yeah, is it... Yeah, you know, listen, listen, that's that's in general and, and the whole... How the world is shaping up, you know, that's kind of what we're fighting, right? At the end of the yeah. day, um, where we're fighting for individual freedoms and individual sovereignty over everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the core mission of Bitcoin is at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't make sure the tools are there for people to fight for that freedom, uh, you know, we're going to lose. Um, yeah. You know, we'll let corporate interests and, and money and fiat money take over Bitcoin, it will get taken over. Sure, on the surface, it will be a decentralized network, mm-hmm. but you know how how so how how you know the the only the only way to, to fight that is is at least that I can see is, is through the aspect of mining and making sure um, there's enough people involved in the space. So yeah, it's it's really where the rubber meets the road for Bitcoin is mining, right? And so the more widely dispersed that activity is in terms of both geography and individual participation, the better off the right. network is, the more it serves that end yeah. that you're describing, which is individual sovereignty and freedom. Right. So, um, well, John, this has been really fun conversation. I think we, we hit a lot of typically obscure technical aspects for people and hopefully helped explain them a little bit more clearly. Um, is there anything else that we missed or you or anything you'd like to say in closing? I don't say I think uh, I think we covered everything. I mean again, the only thing I can can't repeat it enough. You know, if you're into Bitcoin, if you're involved in it, if you hold any Bitcoin, just do a little research. You know, it doesn't matter what you're doing, go buy a, you know, a two hundred dollar S9, whatever it is. Check out how Bitcoin might look for devices that you can just run on your desk as 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 seemingly you know stupid and insignificant that it might seem the powers in people and the numbers so mm-hmm. if we have millions involved that's what matters at the end of the day and that's what bitcoin was designed for it was designed for millions of people involved in the system not forty thousand nodes and not you know a thousand central mines contributing to the majority of hash rate. Mm-hmm. We need millions of people involved in the base layer. Beautifully said. Where can people find you on the internet? The uh, main website is futurebit.io. Um, and you can find us on Twitter as well, futurebit. And then my handle is jstephanop1. Awesome. We'll link to both of those in the show notes. John, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Great conversation.